0: So, the conversation tonight is about evaluating others, about evaluating others, about really being able to look into the lives of brothers and sisters who are around you, who are in your immediate context. This could well be sisters, brothers, inside, outside the church, it could be children, it could be elders. There are people's lives who need someone outside of them to look into them to be able to see and think and perceive that there might be trouble, that there might be challenges, that there might be some obstacle that needs to be overcome. And it is incumbent upon biblical leadership to be able to look into the lives of others, of the people in their church, and to be able to see the needs that they have. This is what you're looking for, sir, right here. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, two, when we talk about being able to teach others also, Paul exhorting Timothy, train up men who'll be able to teach others also. This shouldn't be an unfamiliar topic to us. You know, on the negative side, some people call this fruit picking, to be able to look into someone else's life and to see what's going on. Usually this is said, this fruit-picking terminology is used by people who have a sin issue themselves that they are not willing to contend with. You've been evaluating me for the last 10 months. Evaluation is not uh, uncommon to us, is it? Uh, Rightly so, you've been evaluating me. And by what criteria have you been evaluating me and my life and my family? By what criteria? What criteria do I want you to use? God's Word, the Bible. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the qualifications of an elder. And rightly so. It's good that you do this. You know, if ever there was a wayward way with me, I would really appreciate it if someone would come to me and tell me that something's going on that doesn't look right. I saw a hand go up in the back, yeah. (laughs) I would want to receive instruction. Proverbs talks all about the, the wise man and the wise son. And the foolish man and the foolish son. He talks about the foolish one being so proud in heart that he's not willing to listen to or hear instruction. But the wise son will hear a word of correction. If you believe that I won't receive your word, I, I would pray that you take it to a fellow brother or sister in Christ and have them bring that offense to me. You know, as I try to live above reproach, my evaluation, I know what it includes. I talk too fast. <laughs> Guilty, You know? And, and, and I have a military disposition. Yes, I do. And is that always right? No, it's not. You know, there, there are things that need to be curved off and rounded off of my personality to, to bring me to a place where I am helpful and not hurtful or harmful to my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I, I liken it to the idea of a triangle being dropped into a bag full of circles, how long does the, how long till the triangle becomes a circle? You've got to shake the bag around for a little while, right? So it's okay. You, know, you can shake the bag around. I can bump into and collide with your square and your triangle, and we can all become circles. We've got rough edges. I may speak too fast. I may have a, a, a difficult bedside manner in counseling. I may have a harsh look to my face. All of these things, they, they deserve criticism. I'm not above reproach. I say these things because I want to show you that Christian leadership has to be humble, has to be willing to look at themselves. We're not perfect. No one's arrived. We're all growing in sanctification in our faith. But we're the examples that God has for the church. Who are the biblical leaders? Who are the ones in the church that are leading? They're the examples for others to follow. And so we want leaders in the church to meet the qualifications, to stand out, Please evaluate us, help us. Anyone who would be in leadership, help them to be accountable so that at the end of the day, before their Savior and Lord, they would be called faithful. Of course, in the midst of this, evaluation is going to cause you reflection because you're going to be thinking to yourself, oh man, if that kind of scrutiny goes one way, it probably goes the other way as well. And you're right. You've got to ask yourself the question, and you necessarily should, are you pulling the speck out of someone's eye before you're pulling the log out of your own eye? How hypocritical would it be to constantly be a critic of everything, as if your life is perfect? But are we supposed to hide behind feelings of inadequacy? Somebody somewhere must step up and stand for holiness, righteousness, and justice. Isn't this what we're seeing right now in the U.S. Senate as these hearings continue to unfold? There are documents that have been forged and created. Other governments have been involved in our political election process. Candidates were using government agencies to help themselves get elected. Somebody's going to jail, right? That's what we'd hope for. America, Americans are well aware of justice. Lady justice, blind, weighing the scales. Justice requires evaluation. Evaluation requires tough questions be asked and be answered. Evaluation also means that someone must make a determination regarding truth. Somebody must know what truth is and what truth looks like, who is telling it, how long lies have been told, and ultimately what punishment is deserved and is just for the liars. Which of you at work doesn't face evaluation? Evaluation. You all face evaluation. You face it from your employer. You face it from your employees. You face it from customers, from the public. You face it from the government for sure. Some of us are well-regulated businesses. We know all too familiar and are are very uncomfortable when the person with the blue suit shows up at the front door and says, Hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. (laughs) Doesn't really settle too well with us in our hearts. Evaluation is happening all the time. And I want you to remember this about evaluation, so that no one in here would say, oh, you're just being fruit pickers. You're being fruit pickers. Don't get caught into that trap. Is evaluation right? Is evaluation just? Is evaluation necessary? I hope you can agree with me. The answer to those questions is yes. And as we have seen that evaluation happens in the church, it needs to particularly happen of leadership. not sure if you're too aware, but a very considerable Christian brother fell this last week. This is the first Sunday out of ministry in the pulpit in in Portland, Oregon. There's a man that spoke to us for an hour and 30 minutes at Shepherds Conference, and he was found to be in adultery. And that was called out this last week. The leadership took him out of leadership immediately. You imagine adultery is going on for years and years and years, and the man was allowed to speak at the Shepherds Conference, and he was the speaker that ministered to my soul the most at the conference. Leadership gets put under scrutiny first. Put leadership under scrutiny. But remember that if you're going to put leadership under scrutiny, remember that scrutiny falls two ways. An evaluation is always necessary. Evaluating God's sheep then becomes necessary. How do you evaluate the spiritual health of the congregation? What does leadership do to evaluate church member sanctification? How can and should you be equipped to evaluate brothers' And sisters in the church, this is our conversation for tonight. And so before we get too far into this, the first thing that I want to do is make the biblical case for you. I want, to, I want to present the Bible's idea of what evaluation looks like. You know, in Christian circles, we're called evangelists. We know this word all too well. But I would have you understand that it's ripped right out of the Greek. Euangelion is the Greek term, and we just say evangelist. If you labor alongside an elder in the church, you're called a deacon. This word also is just ripped right out of the Greek. If you're the the Greek word diakonos, if you're a deacon, you get your word translated right out of the Greek. But what if you're somebody who is actively able to look at brothers and sisters in Christ, recognize that they're in sin, and you have the qualification and the tact to confront them in love such that they repent? What do you call that person? Is that a deacon? Is that an evangelist? Well, the Greek word here is epistrepho, epistrepho. I want you to turn in your Bibles to James five nineteen and 20. What do you call a Christian who is observant, tactful and graceful in the act of evaluation? Two times in James five nineteen and 20, this Greek word comes up and this Greek word epistrepho, it means to turn, to turn around, to turn back, To turn from or to return. It's used 40 times in the New Testament. It gives us the perfect mixture, not only of turning physically, literally, uh, in, in in a directional sense, but also in the sense of turning away from sin and turning to God. It has both senses to it. It has a brother word, maybe you're familiar with, the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind for the better or to repent. So it's used synonymously and in conjunction with metanoia, repentance. I want you to hear this from Acts thirty or Acts three nineteen. Peter is speaking, and Luke records of of Peter's sermon. He says this in three nineteen of the book of Acts. He says, "Therefore repent, metanoia, and return, epistrefo, so that your sins may be wiped away. Therefore repent and return." Paul says to King Agrippa. In Acts 26, 20, when he's making his defense of the faith there, he says, I received the vision and spoke it boldly to many Jews. And I told them that they should repent, metanoia, and turn, epistrepho, to God, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now let's look at the word in the context of evaluating others. You're in James 5, 19 and 20. Read this with me. James 5, 19 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is one who turns another away. This is an (laughs) epostraphoner. See how it doesn't work? It's easier to call the person a turner, right? We've got a turners in the church. They go and they help people turn. I don't, know, I don't want to be called an epistrephoner. <laughs> the idea is that men and women turn to God. That they turn from their sins. They turn from their wicked ways. And they turn to God. And this is done at the hands of other men and women. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who would help to turn a sinner from the error of his way. Look at, look at that verse again, 519. It says, if any one of you strays from the truth. This is inside the church, folks. This is right here in the family of God. It's absolutely the case that people bring into the church bad theology with them. You know, we go through the membership classes to try to weed that out necessarily, but you're still going to come in with bad practice of theology, even if you have solid theology. Because somewhere you've got good theology or any kind of good theology is stacked up here and your practice of theology is trailing. It's lagging behind. You, you, these two don't balance each other, nor should they, because it always creates the tension that's necessary for your life. So that you don't want to be a hypocrite and you keep trying to bump up your practice to match your theology. And if you've got bad theology, you've got to tear it down and build it back up again. So that's what we're trying to do. This is inside the church. People bring in their bad theology they continue to lean on and use it in their practice of their daily lives, and you can see it. You can see bad theology when it's played out on a daily basis. You can hear it when you sit down with someone and, and have lunch with them. You can hear bad theology coming out of them about what they did last weekend, about what they did yesterday, about what they're going to do two hours from now. If you'll listen, if you ask questions, you can evaluate by what someone says in the theology that's inside of them. But James says, he says, there's one who turns him back. There's the person, the one who turns him back, the turner. That word epistrafo. There's a solid biblical idea here, and it's that a brother and sister, as a brother and sister, you can come alongside someone who's erring in their way, someone who's sinning. And that you could cause somebody through your actions, through your words, through your understanding of solid biblical theology and right goals and a right worldview, you could cause someone to turn from their way and turn to God and repent. What happens if you do this? According to the text, two things happen. First, you save the soul of that person from death. You save their soul from death. This is powerful. Eternal salvation is in view. If you approach a brother or sister in trouble, you might be the agent that God uses to bring salvation. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Second, another result of this is that you can cover a multitude of sins. And as you think about covering a multitude of sins, this certainly looks toward past sin, which weighs us down so heavily. And you need to walk someone through the idea that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But beyond that, in, in, in helping to cover a multitude of past sins, you should also have this idea and the text does of looking forward to sins that otherwise would have been committed if you didn't have someone standing in the midst being a turner and helping to turn people to God's righteous standard, to His righteous path. So the turner, the epistre font, <laughs> sure, <laughs> doesn't work like evangelist, does it? <laughs> this is the biblical case for brothers and sisters who would turn someone from their sin, who help people to see sin and to repent. But further than a word study, I want you to know that there are plenty of other passages that offer biblical warrant for this opportunity that brothers and sisters have to engage in evaluating others. And I want to say this, the only hesitation that I have in all of tonight's message is this in presenting this. Inevitably, there's going to be two kinds of people that I'm concerned with. And if you fall into either of these two categories, please listen to my admonition right now. There might be baby Christians And there might be Christians here who have been walking with the Lord for 40 years, but lack tact and grace. So if you're a new Christian or you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you lacked tact and grace, please don't use this one hour conversation tonight to become the behavior police of the church. Please don't do that. That would really be bad for everybody. So this is a conversation, as Eric has outlined for several weeks now, that's going on about biblical leadership. And so I'm trying to equip the leadership of the church, that next generation of leadership, to understand how it is and why it is that you're called to the table to evaluate others and how you do that. That's what we're after tonight. I want to teach you and show you these principles, some principles about how to do this. Here's some of the passages. What do you think about these passages? What do you do with Matthew 18? What do you do with Matthew 18? If Matthew 18 isn't talking about evaluating others, I don't know what is. Matthew 18, 15. If, you're, if, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The, the whole text hinges on you looking at a brother's life, at your brother's faults. You must also know the command of God... And be intent about following them yourself to desire to help others that they might obey God. And that you might obey God by doing Matthew 18, 15. There's so many sins that happen on a daily basis in a church. We have to have people willing. And this doesn't, this is no biblical counselor. This doesn't even really require you to be a leader in the church. Matthew 18:15 is for all of y'all. This is ready to go today. If you see a sin and you know what sin looks like and you're fighting it yourself and you've had something in the way of victory, then help somebody else overcome the same thing. Look at Acts 20, 28 to 30. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all of your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. From among your own selves. Leaders are demanded here. It's demanded of leaders that they detect wolves. To do this, you must have sound theology, solid theology. And you must also then have your eyes up and your ears open to what other leaders and people are communicating and saying in the church. Third John was written to Gaius to warn about Diotrephes, a man who was just so irate with itinerant missionaries and speakers coming in and talking to the church. He was a foul man. And John says this to Gaius. He says, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. John's prepared to call out this Diotrephes character. Second Samuel 12, you know, David needed Nathan to come and share a tale of a wicked man and a sheep, and then he delivered the punchline to David, you are the man. And then Paul's anger toward the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5.1. And he says this, and I, listen to this. One. I hope you get your heads around this one quickly. He says this, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul is miles away, maybe even hundreds of miles away, and he's writing to a church, and he's talking about someone's deeds who have been brought to him, and he's judging them, and he tells them, how is it that you didn't know? How, How did you allow this to happen? How did you not care for him and care for the church? How could it be the case that even today he's still in your midst? He goes on to say, kick him out of the church. I hope you understand that this is just a smattering of the passages that you can come up with for understanding that evaluation of brothers and sisters in the church is necessary. This is is the idea that as Christians, we have a responsibility to police our own ranks That judgment begins within the household of God. Leadership, especially leadership, are called, they're called upon not only to be evaluated, but to evaluate the behavior of their brothers and sisters. So then the next question comes this way How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you evaluate where brothers and sisters are at before the Lord? How do you walk into their lives and consider opportunities to impact them for the gospel? and for their own glory, and for the purity of the church. I believe there are three requirements for biblical brotherly evaluation. This isn't big brother evaluation. This is not a government operation. It's biblical brotherly evaluation to help all pursue Christ-likeness, and with it, joy, peace, and love. So the first requirement for biblical brotherly evaluation is solid theological worldview. And for some of us, we went over this a couple of weeks back, but we're going to head down this road anyway. Being a biblical counselor, it was necessary, and I think for Christians it is, to have a simple biblical worldview. So I'm just going to share this one with you. I call it the heart of God worldview, and it helps to understand the heart of God for all of humanity. It also helps us to diagnose our lives in the face of Failure, depression, anxiety, fear, bitterness, wrath, lust. All these things that trouble and plague us. You have that heart on your note sheet there with the little circles in place. We're going to walk through that. That should help you as I present this. But the whole thing, that whole heart begins with one question. And it's the question that is loaded with simplicity and profundity. And the question is this. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? And if you're a Christian, you answer that. The purpose of my life is to Thank you. That's exactly right. Shouldn't it always be the case? Do you get sad if you ask someone, hey, Christian, what's the purpose of your life? And they come up with some other answer? Doesn't satisfy as much, does it? So we know what we're driving for. The aim of everything is the glory of God. Okay, that's fantastic. The glory of God. It shouldn't be any different. That's at the top center of that heart. So the whole heart is focused on, the top center of the heart, to glorify God, the glory of God. It answers the question, what is the purpose of your life? So then next, the next thought that flows out of that is this thought. It's a second question, and it goes this way. If all glory is to go to God, does he have the right to have expectations of your behavior? If all glory is to go to God, does he have the right to have expectations of behavior? of your behavior? The answer is, absolutely. Certainly. With great assurance, he does. That's the left side, the far left side. E-O-B goes way out to the left. It comes immediately out of the idea that we have to glorify God, and then we understand that God has expectations of our behavior. And if we understand those two things, that dives us down to that bottom and center point The bottom and center point is the place where Adam and Eve found themselves in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It's the point of decision, the P-O-D. Down there at the bottom, the P-O-D, the point of decision. The point of decision. You know, we have lots of opportunities to make decisions throughout the course of the day. It's been estimated that you'll make up to 35,000 choices in a day. Just your head just clicking off choices. Left, right, up, down, yes, no. 35,000. Consider that each one of those has the opportunity to glorify God. Glory, 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 glory. Just one after the next. If your heart and your mind are locked up on God's righteous standard, if they're not, it could be horrible for you as life unfolds. Before we get too far into the world, you want to ask this question, though, because down here at the point of decision, I'm thinking that there are only two choices that you could possibly make at the point of decision. Two choices. Is it right that I reduce all of human experience down to two choices? Is that right? Is that too quick or too immediate of a deduction? To just dive in and say all of humanity goes down to making two choices. So in in Joe's life, everything that you do, from work to home to play, wife, kids, it comes down to making. One of two choices. Every decision. I could go in and open them all up with you, and every decision will come down to one of two choices. And if I ask you about any one of those areas of your life, you're going to tell me that only one or the other happened. And it'll be pretty easy to see where you've fallen off the rails in life, right? Is, it, is, that, too, is that too simplistic to reduce it down to two choices? Well, here's why. Here's why. Jesus said that the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the number one commandment in the Bible. Everything gets reduced. All the Ten Commandments, everything gets reduced down to this one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, if you just stop right there, you understand that sounds like two choices, doesn't it? Just like Adam and Eve had in the garden, right? Obey or disobey, right? That's it. Obey or disobey. If you obey, where's the glory go? You see on your, on your chart there the little dashes? They run right back up to what? The GOG, right? The glory of God. But if you don't obey, you disobey. You sin. The question then goes this way. If you disobey God and you sin, are you outside the heart of God? What if we disobey? Can you stay in the heart of God and disobey? Can you stay in the heart of God and disobey? I say yes. Absolutely you can, if you obey. Sounds like a contradiction, Oliver. You're talking circles. What do you what do you mean? If I disobey, I can stay in if I obey. Okay, so look at look at the look at the chart. Do you see I laid the cross down there on the side? This is what God did because he knows that we're Galatians five people, battling flesh and spirit. He knows that we're Romans, seven people, that we do the things that we don't want to do and we don't do the things that we know that we should. He knows that's the way we are. So the cross of Christ is right there. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1, 1.9. The provision has been made. The opportunity to stay in the heart of God has been made. It's been made through this beautiful process of peace purchased in the blood of Christ. That's the P.O.P., that's that little circle above the cross on the right-hand side, the POP, the process of peace. And 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The beauty here is this, if you fail to obey, there remains a chance to obey. <laughs> you catch that? If you fail to obey, there remains a chance to obey. Christ purchased for us the process of peace through his sacrificial death on the cross. And the process of peace purchased by Christ is glorious to God. It's glorious to God. And if you use it, you stay inside of the heart of God. But if you never use it, if you never use the process of peace, could it ever be said that you were ever inside the heart of God? So, to stay in the heart of God, you have to be one, because we're all wrapped in the flesh, who uses the process of peace. You have to be one. Here's the process of peace. You see the one, two, three, four, five on your outline. Number one, we confess our sins, we make known what happened, we state the fact of our wrongdoing. We state the fact of our wrongdoing in the light of our understanding that we violated something in God's holiness. If we understand that, then next, number two, we repent. We repent. It is not enough to merely confess the fact that you violated God's standard. There must be a burning heart desire that says to God, I don't ever want to do that again. That's repentance. Third, we dive into the ocean of God's forgiveness. I always put this on my hand because I remember that right there, the center of those five fingers is the high point. And forgiveness is the high point in this process of peace. Forgiveness purchased by Christ is the high point in the process. Confession is the little one that we never do. (laughs) It's tucked over the side. Christians just don't confess their sin. It's the little guy. Hello, confess your sin. Right? But the high point is forgiveness. The high point is forgiveness. The high point is forgiveness. God's forgiveness is like an ocean, and it's ready for you to go dive in. It's refreshing. It's cool. It's cleansing. You need to be in it. This simple worldview, the high point forgiveness. Next, the trigger finger, we restore our relationship. We're willing to take pains to make right all that we've made wrong. We restore That's number four. And fifth, we choose from that point forward to walk in obedience to God. We understand that we've strayed and caused damage to His glory and to our life through our disobedience. And the fifth point, the opposable digit, the thumb, the one that holds it all together is obey. It's what you missed from the beginning. And amazingly, in the power of God through Christ, who gave us the process of peace, if you go through the process of peace, obey, the last one, is what all of those five were from the very beginning. Because 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, which is the little one that starts the whole process... So this act of going through the process of peace is obedience to God because it glorifies God because his son purchased this process of peace for us. How does the process of peace keep us in the heart of God? Because it honors and glorifies his son. This is the process that Jesus purchased for us in his own blood. But we must do it. We must actually do it. We must go through the process of peace. It magnifies Christ's sacrificial death for us. How ridiculous would it be? for us to get seasoned passes or to have someone get seasoned passes to Disneyland and never use them. Do you realize that in the process of peace, you have something so incredibly more profound than season tickets to Disneyland? You have access to the God of the universe, to a right relationship with him, to stay in his heart. You know, you need to think through what Jeremiah 2.22 says when God's Recorded through Jeremiah, and and God says to Israel, he says, Though you you wash yourselves with much lye and use much hyssop to clean yourselves, the stain of your iniquity is ever before me. Do you realize that through the process of peace, this is how God wanted to cleanse us? What Jeremiah 2.22 records could not be undone for the Israelites in Christ can be undone. We are washed and we are cleansed through this process. Look in your, are you still at John, First uh, John 1, 9? Look at First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. For he himself is the propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate. We have one who will wash us and cleanse us before an almighty God. In order for leaders to evaluate others, they must have a worldview with all of these terms and understandings and ideas. All the stops on the heart of God worldview are important. It's important for you to understand how to see someone's life, how to see your own life, and where it plugs in. If you're talking with somebody and they start talking about failures in their marriage, do you know where to plug that in in the heart of God worldview? Could you ask them about expectations of their behavior that God has from Ephesians chapter 5. Maybe they don't understand that God has the right to have expectations. You can cast the conversation back up to the glory of God. Maybe they understand the glory of God and the expectation of behavior coming out of Ephesians chapter 5, and maybe there's something with their heart that just chooses not to confess or repent their sin of their sin. There's some other idol they're holding on to. And you can walk them through the great need of confession, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and obedience and show them that all of this is to the glory of God. I'm talking fast. I'll slow down. (laughs) The process of peace purchased in the blood of Christ is so critical. Someone will come to you and they'll say they're a Christian, but they're struggling with anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, bitterness, fornication, lust, you name it. This disposition is not glorifying to God. Your friend is stuck in their bad theology. Are you able to show them the process of peace purchased in the blood of Christ? Immediately, you have a chance to bring them into a right relationship with the Savior, to regain, to help them regain their peace and joy. There was a scenario that I gave in a few of you and it went this way. What if your 19-year-old son looks sad and comes to you to talk and he's been sad and depressed for a while? And he actually confessed to you that he stole $20 from a friend. You see the opening to offer him peace and joy by saying this to him. Hey, you need to go and return the money to your friend. Confess to him what you did and ask for forgiveness, right? Confession and forgiveness, restoration or returning of the money. But your son says to you, yeah, I see what you're saying. That seems important, but I have a better idea. What about I just mail him the money? I'm so embarrassed I could never face him. I I don't want to wreck our relationship by telling him. So I'll send the money. It's better that way. You agree with me, right? You say, no. You need to go to him and give him the money in person and tell him what you've done. And he definitively says to you, I can't do it. I won't do it. Your son has bad theology, stubbornness, self-reliance, huge amount of pride. He believes that he's his best provider, protector, and defender. By doing this, he is equally saying, God's ways are inadequate, God's ways are harmful, God's ways are painful, and God's ways destroy. Do you see that? Can you see him saying all those things by those comments? Can you show this to your son? Can you show this to a friend? Can you show him what God expects of his behavior? Where he is stuck in the process of peace? Can you get in and and dig around with questions to expose and find out what the idol of his heart would be and show him that maybe it really is that you, you want so much to be appreciated and loved by other people, that your pride is so high, and maybe what God wants you to do is humble yourself. Are you able to walk through and talk those things out with a friend and help overcome a multitude of transgressions? We need to move on to the second requirement for biblical brotherly evaluation. Biblical brotherly evaluation, the second requirement, comprehensive unifying objectives. I'm talking about goals here. Goals. I want to look at goals in three areas. You know, if you're a coach, if you have, many of us have played sports or athletics, but a coach has to get really excited about one thing in particular. What's that? What do you rally the team for? We want... Victory, off to victory. And the boss at work, they need to rally the team around focusing on make money, (laughs) bring home the dollar. Right. But as a Christian, we must rise above all earthly and man-made concerns. This isn't about victory and it's not about cash. We must focus on three unifying objectives. And these three are comprehensive because they're like bowls stacked inside of one another. There are three biblical objectives. Let's look at each of these, unifying biblical objectives. The first one, personally, individually, we need to do this. Personally and individually, you need to have a desire to become a mature man. You need to have a desire to become a mature man. The objective of each human being calling themselves a Christian must come out of Ephesians 4.13. Individually, we should all be headed to become a mature man, to achieve the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a goal, isn't it? That's a pretty powerful goal. Very simply, Jesus Christ pleased His Father. We want to do the same. We need to grow up in the faith. We need to get off the milk of the Word and the spiritual infancy and move on to the meat that we might truly become disciple-makers just as Christ had commanded us. The second unifying objective, after you become a mature man, we look corporately as a church, we look to build the church. If you're trying to become the mature man, the next thing you do is you focus on building the church. There there might be men and women that teach others biblical things outside of the church, but if you don't have your eyes focused on building up the church, how biblical could your counsel be? Moving out of the personal need to, make mature, to be a mature disciple maker, we need to identify the goal of building the church of Jesus Christ, who said himself, I will build my church. If we love him and we want to keep his commandments, we join him in his church building endeavor. We find our place in the church. We fully identify with the church. We make great investments In the church. This is all unifying to all of us. And it must be a great concern for leaders, particularly if you're going to head toward maturity. Maturity alone doesn't allow it, it's not enough for maturity to come just by reading your Bible and praying. Maturity always will find its way into the church to build the church, will it not? Won't maturity come into the church to build the church? Those two things go together, right? It must be the great concern of leaders to build the church. The third one is we look at universally. So personally, the mature man, corporately building the church. Universally, this is where you go right back up to the heart of God worldview. And what's point number one? The glory of God. I told you they were all stacked in bowls, right? There's like three bowls stacked on top of each other, And the one at the bottom that's holding everything together is the glory of God universally, the glory of God in all things. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's the most basic principle of our lives. It should unite everyone. Everyone should be united at this. God is so worthy. This is a a pinnacle unifying principle. So if I were to recap these things, if you're a Christian, if you say you're a Christian and you want to pursue Christ with your life, you should be in pursuit of the mature man through the power of the Holy Spirit. You should join Jesus in building His church, and you should glorify God in all things and at all times. How do these comprehensive unifying objectives help you lead people? How do they help you evaluate others? I think it's pretty clear. If you go to lunch with somebody and they only talk about snowboarding, what do you know about that person? Bit of an idol, huh? Bit of an idol. But if you, go to, if you go to church with somebody and they want to talk about the things of the Lord, where are they putting their hope? Where are they putting their trust? Do you see how conversation becomes critical? That's what we're going to next. What are the chances that someone came into your life this last week complaining about life? In the Navy, we had complainers all the time. Serve up food when you're underway for 100 days. People get a little angry. <laughs> Chances are, this last week, you ran into a complainer. You ran into a complainer. What do you immediately know about a complainer? Get those ideas right now? What do you know about a complainer? Do they hold truly unifying biblical objectives? Do they have right goals for themselves in this life? In listening carefully and patiently, you have every chance... To identify where the complainer is at in that heart of God worldview. And to understand how committed they are to unifying biblical objectives. What you need to do is to find an inroad to the depth of their problem. How do you find an inroad into the depth of someone's problem? If you can identify where they're at, where they're stuck, how do you go in and dig more? Anybody, how do you dig more into someone's life once you've kind of identified maybe where they're stuck in in, in your heart of God worldview? How do you dig? Questions, questions. You ask great questions. Number three, the third requirement of biblically, a biblical brotherly evaluation is requirements. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 20, verse 5. Proverbs 20, verse 5. Proverbs 20, verse 5, 20, verse five reads this way. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Let's read that again. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. The man of understanding is a believer and is one who has patience, grace, and truth. The man of understanding follows James 1.19, which we had Pastor Eric preach just a few weeks back. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This Proverbs 25 man of understanding is an asker and a listener. He's, he's ready to draw out of the other person something that they may not really be wanting to share, a plan. Maybe the plan for suicide. Maybe the plan to take off for an expensive weekend without notifying anybody about it. Maybe a plan for something else. But a man of understanding can ask questions and be a good listener and a friend and can draw out the plans of a man's heart. As believers and as leaders, we're asked to be men of understanding. That's us. We're to be that guy. In doing so, we we will prove our confidence in God, our contentment in the Spirit, and our conformity to Christ as we ask questions of a brother and seek to draw out things from his life. We put our theology on display by asking and listening and giving the other brother a chance, lost in his sin, to put his theology on display. You know, someone doesn't have to be a Christian to have theology. Everybody out there has got theology, right? <laughs> They've all got an understanding of God in one capacity or another. This gives us a chance, though, to listen for bad theology, to listen for truth claims or statements of facts that someone will, made, will make while you're sitting over a lunch or, or just sitting on a park bench with them. Here's, here's an argument that I heard recently. If you heard this, what would you say? I know something about what you would think, but what would you say? Listen to this. We shouldn't go knocking on our neighbor's doors to share the gospel because we chase more people away from Christ by bothering them than we save. What do you think about that? What about this one? I love Jesus, I just hate the church because of all the hypocrites inside of it. And what about this one? Jesus loves me just the way I am. Do, do you hear theology? Do you hear bad theology? Do you know how you would go in and begin to tackle that and ask questions? What about the bad theology that comes out of Matthew chapter 7? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. Matthew 7:22 7, is a powerful example of bad theology. Read this with me. Christ says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What an incredibly powerful passage. You know, I read this to a man the other week. Got a chance to share some of these very things with a young man, and And in talking through some of these things, I came to this passage and I asked him, doesn't that hurt your heart a little bit? Jesus is saying that these people said that they were casting out demons in Jesus' name and performing many miracles in his name and prophesying in his name. In their mind, they're really attached to Christ. And Jesus presents their case straightforward. He just straightforward says this is what they said to me. This is what they will say to me. These people are among us right now. They will say this to Christ. And he looks at them and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This group of people fully expecting Christ to embrace them for the fullness of joy, to overcome them, to be fully received and expecting all of heaven's glories. And they never knew him. Do you see the tension that this creates? I asked the man, do you you agree with these people? Did they have good theology? The the tension is that we want to trust what people say. The, The tension is that we won't question what they say. But the text lays it out very clearly. We have every reason to believe that everything that they were saying was suspect. Why? Well, what's their ultimate disposition? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords makes a very clear distinction for these folks. You're not with me. You're outside of me. No matter what you think, it's not true. Doesn't he say that in the text? Isn't it right there? So that means all the things that they were saying about themselves were flat-out lies. And as much as they really believed them, they were completely wrong. Their bad theology will be put in check, and it will come at the most costly of all times, and they will be rejected. Bad theology. Because of their works, Jesus corrects their theology, he tells them who they are, and he tells them where they're going to go. We must ask questions. We must be good question askers. You know, I I would hate to, to know someone who was a friend of mine who I could see in hell burning, who said, Oliver, I prophesied in Jesus' name. And I never went to them and asked them more questions about their theology because it doesn't fly. We, we must be those that see bad theology, hear it, perceive it, and then ask questions. Can you find the idol? In, in this passage, there's an idol. They, they, they love self. They love ideas of Christ. They, they've made up their own religion. Psalm 1 talks about the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And which, which people are these people? And if you judge them by Psalm 1, which are these people? They're the wicked. What are they, who do they think they are? The righteous. The righteous. How upside down is that? They try to create some third-class hybrid citizen for heaven. Not, not a possibility. Out of the abundance of the heart, their mouth will speak. They will clearly indicate to us the where, when, what, and why of their problems and their sufferings if we will only listen. It will be clear that their desire might be for comfort in keeping their children close to them. Or their desire might be in pleasure, in surfing or biking instead of greater responsibility at home. Their desire might be a name and a reputation before having a right walk with God. They might desire satisfaction through stuff, shoes, bags, clothes, shirt, hat, golf clubs. And you can hear it all when you talk to them and ask questions of them. So we listen long and ask questions to help understand their motives and the desires of their heart. And only after listening long do we have the chance to identify the idol that might be sitting there, that has captured their affections more than Christ. It becomes extremely important to guide a conversation, to guide a conversation, to navigate it because time is short. We have every reason to be very purposeful in what we say and how we say it and how long we say it. Do you know how to guide a conversation? Do you approach conversations with objectives? Are you even interested? Have you thought about these things? I had a great mentor who was very concerned about the conversations that I had at him over lunch, and he guided and he navigated. Man, did a lot of listening to me. (laughs) Did a lot of listening to me. Those were some interesting times. Perhaps you've approached conversations for far too long with other motivations, though. Here's a tough question for you to contend with. Do you listen to how much you talk? Do you listen to how much you talk? Here's another one. Do you take responsibility for the content of your conversations? I feel comfortable asking you these questions because I've had to take great inventory in these two areas of my life over the last 12 years. I've been the guy to dominate conversation. I've been the guy to allow unworthy speech to come from my lips. And these are questions that have stuck with me. I still have to watch myself diligently because it's far too easy to start talking about self and not stop. When you think people are attentive and sympathetic and really paying attention and so engrossed in all the marvelous, wonderful things you have to say about yourself, we love the attention. And certainly at times you do need to speak, but I have found a friend in brevity. I have found a friend in brevity. Brevity helps get me to the point. Brevity keeps me from going on beyond, going going past praise and thankfulness of God. Brevity. Keeps me at praise and thankfulness, not the complaining. Brevity requires wonderful alone time with God and contemplation of His greatness. And brevity is a great mark of a question asker and a spiritual leader. Well, again, why? Why should leaders be interested in these things, in questions? Well, leaders should be highly interested because it's the lives and the hearts of people around us that we should be concerned with. Our desire should be to give our lives away to them. The man of understanding in Proverbs is a man of brevity, and he's a man who asks great questions. So I would ask you to find great questions, purpose to ask them in conversations, and be extremely intentional about your conversations. There's quite a bit more that I have in the way of talking about what are good questions, because I know you'll ask me that next, but I need to be brief myself, and pull this thing to a close. I will just tell you that when you think about questions, there's some great categories of questions. Physical health, resources, influences, emotional questions, action questions, concept questions, questions about history, questions about desires. Lots of categories of good questions. There's lots of biblical resources for all great questions in those categories. I would just ask you to consider, as a biblical leader, the leader that's going to be made in this church, will you be one that has a solid theological foundation and worldview? Will you be one that practices yourself the process of peace? Will you be one that has an understanding of those three massive objectives and is in solid pursuit of each one of them? God, the building of the church, and becoming a mature man. And will you be someone in our church who is prepared to ask more questions than to answer questions? Not that you don't have to answer, but we need a lot of question askers. This is a conversation about biblical leadership in the way of evaluating others. I hope it also served as a great evaluation for ourselves. Let me pray for our time. Father God, I'm so thankful for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ who allow some great conversation to come to them. It's a lot of reflection that's going to be done tonight a lot of heavy things. And Lord, I just pray that none of it would weigh us down. We know that we are all made new creatures, new creations in Christ. And as I know very well from my own life, you have extended so incredibly much grace. Even to stand here tonight, so much grace. For every one of us, there's grace. You're, You're so patient and loving. And in the midst of your grace and your patience and your love for us, you are trying to build your church. Lord, make it the desire of our hearts to pursue you and to help you in the building of your church. Burden us with this. Grieve us over this. It's okay to let us lose sleep over this. We want to be a blessing to you and bring glory to your name because this life is so short and we need to make wise use out of every choice that we make. We look forward to doing that all to your praise and glory. Thank you for this blessed time. In Christ's name, amen.